Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. Now, my guest today is one of the most respected voices in macro finance. She's been in the game a long time and definitely has a bent towards investing in precious metals as a safe haven asset class, which is the bent you will find in any macro finance pros that have been around for longer than a decade. It's probably the most common theme you'll see in their portfolios. I have definitely adopted this myself. I'm by no means a, a gold bug, but I do have a safe full of gold coins. I hope to never need it. In fact, what I hope to do with it is leave it for my kids when I get carried out on my shield. But, you know, it's a good just-in-case insurance policy, great hedge against inflation. It's probably the only asset that has literally stood the test of time. And when I say the test of time, I mean 5,000 years, the rise and fall of thousands of empires, uh, thousands of market cycles. You know, that's one asset class that may not always generate returns, but has always held its value, held its purchasing power. And so I think it should always be a cornerstone of anybody looking to protect their future. Anyways, Lynette Zhang is her name, and she's the chief market analyst of ITM Trading. Very, very intelligent when it comes to analyzing currency cycles. That's what we talk about today. We also touch on the most significant geopolitical threats occurring in our news flow today. We all know what I'm talking about, what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine. And we talk about my favorite topic, which is gaining more personal sovereignty. So I've been waiting a long time to get Lynette on my show. This was an absolute pleasure, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Here is Lynette Zhang. All right, what's up, guys? Jay Martin here, investor and CEO of Cambridge House, and I'm joined right now by Lynette Zhang, the Chief Market Analyst at ITM Trading. Lynette, how you doing? I am doing great, and I'm very happy to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. I, I feel like I've wanted to talk to you for, for many years at this point. And so I've got like a web of directions I want to take this conversation. You know, you're, you're somebody that people look to as an expert in currency cycles, like we were just talking about before I hit record. You've got some very unique takes on geopolitical events, which I find very interesting. Independent thoughts that I think are worth paying attention to. And you speak a lot and you do a lot on the thread of my favorite topic, which is hunting down personal sovereignty, right? And so we're going to talk about that too and the importance of it and, mm -hmm. and why, from my perspective, it's, it's not bad news that nobody has your back because that puts you in the driver's seat. We'll get into that. So thank you for coming on. And maybe for anybody who's not familiar with who you are or with ITM, could we start with just the super high level overview, Lynette? Who are you and, and how do you spend your day? Okay, well, that's, oh, I spend my day in research. That's pretty much what I do. Uh, but I've been in these markets on some level, honestly, since 1964, when I was 10 years old. I have been groomed for this moment in time. There's no doubt about it. Uh, my uncle happened to be a major antique dealer back east, and he was my favorite uncle. And so he taught me the trends of um, hard assets, right? And how they always roll, roll from undervaluation to fair valuation to overvaluation to fair valuation to undervaluation. But because they're a real asset, they never go away. So the key is you want to buy it when it's somewhere undervalued. And if you're going to liquidate it, because you don't necessarily need to do that, it just depends on the circumstances, you obviously want to liquidate it somewhere near the top of that continuous thread. Yeah. And 
I've been in banking. I was a stockbroker with Shearson. That's where I started studying currencies uh, life cycles in 1987. And frankly, I came to ITM in 2002. ITM's been around since 95. Uh, but I came here in 2002 after most of my formulas confirmed that we were near the end of this currency's life cycle. The final formula that I needed confirmed in October of 2002. So I spend my days paying attention to the patterns and that's what I try and teach because you don't have to understand all necessarily the technical language of the markets. You just have to understand how to identify the patterns. And then when you do that, Frankly, the next piece is to understand where we are in that valuation cycle. So what's true fundamental value of that asset or that instrument. And if you can get both of those things, frankly, nobody can pull the wool over your eyes. Mm. I love what you said about, you know, you alluded to pattern recognition being a greater skill set than maybe technical analysis, right? Absolutely. And it really resonates with me because as an investor, maybe if you're a day trader, it's different, right? I don't, I don't trade, so I don't know, but you know, I like to position myself for the long term and um mm -hmm. and 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 yeah, yeah, understanding cycles. And you know, what I appreciate about some of the things I've heard you say is, you know, you speak about the end of the currency cycle, right? This is the end of this currency's lifespan, right? Mm -hmm. But Often when we hear this narrative, it's on the back of like a huge doom and gloom crash. There's fire in the YouTube thumbnail and, the, you know, it's Armageddon style, right? But nothing happens overnight like that or very rarely, you know, whereas as I've heard you say, this crash isn't going to occur. It's been occurring since 2008 and these things happen over time, right? And so exactly, it makes more sense to me because we're never going to wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden, you know... It, everything's different, right? Nothing happens like that. Well, actually, if you could look back in March of 2020, okay. uh, we did kind of <laughs> wake up <laughs> and yeah, everything looked a whole lot different. And, and actually when they do the final, well, no, I shouldn't say that because usually they do it on average three times. When they do the overnight revaluation, then frankly, you do wake up and it looks very different as anybody in Venezuela or Argentina or Israel or, you know, I mean, there's so many countries, Cyprus, Greece. I mean, so there it goes slow until it goes fast. Right. Yeah. Right. So you've got to get prepared while it's going slower. And. I think everybody can kind of feel with the inflation that's in the air these days. You know, I was there in 1971. I lived through it and I was like a teenager, you know, in my late teens. So I was, I didn't really understand that in July when I had a $20 bill, it had some level of backing of gold. And in September of that same 1971, it had just debt backing. And it was now in the control of the central banks. I was too young to really understand that at that time. I wish I did, but, you know, I didn't. But having lived through it, I know what it smells like and tastes like and feels like and looks like. Mm. And these are all repeatable patterns. So, yeah, 100% we're at the very end. 
Now let's let's put this in context. How does the end of a currency cycle impact everyday consumers, you know, retail investors like myself? How do you forecast the end of this currency cycle impacting the public? Okay. So you asked me a couple different questions, so we'll just answer the first, how does it impact the normal population, the general public? I think you are seeing this right now in the inflation that's raging. For them to say it's transitory is garbage because it hasn't been transitory since 1913, um, and it's not transitory now. There are too many things that are happening. Wages, what are you going to do, go in and cut wages? Mm, I don't think so. Mm. You know, all of the issues that we're seeing with the supply chains and globalization and Keep in mind, in the 80s, when I first became a stockbroker, all the talk was about globalization. And I remember saying to myself, not so sure that this is such a good thing for the normal person. So the way that we feel it is in the empty shelves at the grocery store that we're still seeing uh, and in the inflation. Now, how that impacts markets, we have been taught that the only choices for investment are Wall Street products. So stocks, bonds, mutual funds, whatever. And so we dutifully make that deposit every time we get a pay paycheck, and then we trust an institutional investor that is investing someone else's money. So do they really care? No, they're getting paid no matter what, right? And their job is to do what Wall Street needs them to do. So invest in bonds when bonds are crashing. That makes a whole lot of sense. And in fact, it is the general public through those institutional investors that have picked up a lot of the bond slack. And I personally would not want to be in a bond <laughs> in this environment. So the way that it impacts the market, since we've been taught that that's the only place to go, is you see the stock market go in melt-up mode, which we've been in. Right. And I don't really think that's over, but that's because they don't know what else to do. Okay. So even if you listen to the talking heads, what do they say? Well, let's rotate into this. Mm. But here's the problem you can only convert that wealth into, in this country, dollars. So if the dollar has no value and nobody will accept it, then what do you have? A trillion times zero is zero. Sure. And that's the piece that people miss. And how much do you factor in the dollar's value relative to other currencies like the euro, et cetera? Because they're all in a race to the bottom, right? It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. No, all that is, is something to say, oh, look, at this is the strong dollar, but baked into the very currency system is inflation. Because they knew, number one, governments could tax you without having to go through legislation. I mean, if you know that you're going to get higher taxes, you might complain, right? They don't want you to complain. They want you to comply. And for corporations, they want you, they want to be able to pay people less and less to work other than those that are chosen few. And so nominal inflation causes that nominal confusion. So 1970, the average wage was about 9,500 bucks. 
but a family of four could live with one wage earner. Right. Now, I'm not saying they were super wealthy, but they could get by. Yeah. Today, I think the average wage is somewhere around, I don't know, 54, 58 grand. Sure. And on the outside, you go, well, I'd much rather have 58,000 than 9,500, except that it takes two wage earners and your paycheck to paycheck at 100 grand. Right. And everybody that made up to 150,000 got stimulus checks. What does that tell you? What do you think they want to be nice? Right. You know, it's because the currency is worth that much less. Mm -hmm. And that's also what's enabled that income and wealth inequality is the system that was put in place because they knew people wouldn't understand it. Right. Now, Lynette, how much do you factor in, if at all? You know, if I if I do something like an exercise that I do somewhat regularly, like I'll pull up the front page of the Wall Street Journal and maybe routers and, you know, a handful of papers and just watch the, the pinballing pendulum of headlines on a day over day basis. Right. It's all very short term coverage. And it seems like most market news is caters to traders. Right. More so than anybody with uh, an eye for cycles or patterns or anything more than a, a one month time horizon. So when you hear statements like or, you know, the market obsessing over potential rate hikes in the near term, right? The, <laughs> you're laughing at that. So, so perfect. So explain this to me because we're so, I don't, I don't include myself in this, but the market is so reactive to these near-term news events and announcements from Jay Powell or whoever about things they might do, right? And it and talk to me about well, how you factor Forward guidance. Sure. Right. Yeah. Do you, do you pay attention to this? Like, oh. I know you talk about it, but, but tell me about how you how you relate that to your plan? Well, there are a couple of ways. Um, number one, what this forward guidance is about is to let those that are that are in the know and that are, have been deemed too big to fail, you and I are not too big to fail, but there are certainly entities and people that have been deemed too big to fail. So they're really giving them a heads up so that they can reposition their portfolio. I mean, think about it. We're in January. How long have they been postulating about raising interest rates? And they're not going to do it until March. Right. Right. So they're way behind the eight ball as far as inflation is concerned. So, yes, just like you, I pay attention to those headlines constantly because what also happens with them is they do reveal the patterns for the normal person that, I mean, they, they, when you read, when you read the papers written by the bankers, by the IMF, by the BIS, by the Fed, by all these guys, right? You'll see that they actually admit to making things really complicated because if they do that, then people don't question them, right? Of oh, course. well, I don't understand finances. So, you know, gosh, they must be so much smarter than me. Um, but when I read them, number one, I know that what they're doing is they're giving a signal to those that have been deemed too big to fail to shift how they're positioned. But it is always the little guy, the, the, the institutional investors that are investing your money that have been picking up the slack so that you don't notice in the bond market how broken it is and how fragile it is so that when it does implode, well, 
you know, hey, those big guys have already gotten out. They're already putting their money in hard assets, gold, rare antiques, real estate, et cetera. Um, And then the little guy is left holding the bag. But as far as patterning is concerned, it absolutely tells you where we are in the cycle when you look at them on a day-to-day basis. Because one of the things that happens, I mean, if you know what happens 100% of the time before a, a crash, before these kinds of cycles or at these kind, end of these cycles, then those headlines actually do reinforce where we are or indicate where we are. So for example, all those headlines of how much the insiders were selling in 2020 as the markets were going up, melting up. Yeah. You think they might have known something that you didn't know. Sure. Right. But that is one of the things that happens 100% of the time before any major correction, crash, whatever. Mm. So that tells you. And I do really feel strongly that you should always do what the smartest guys on any given topic Mm -hmm. are doing for themselves. So again, that's pattern recognition, right? And if you just go and do what they're doing for themselves, so they're selling their stocks and they're buying hard assets. Hmm. Now is that- you should too. Is that what, you know, the, is that what your network is doing, I suppose? I mean, the reason I- started this YouTube channel is to interview people like you and find out what you're doing personally, right? So that then I could steal as many perspectives and plans as possible and implement the ones that work for me, right? And so is that what you're seeing in your network as a de-risking? Oh, a hundred bazillion percent. Interesting, right? Yes, right. it's so interesting. Maybe two, three weeks ago, so this was pretty recent. I came across an article, I think it was in the Financial Times, on the Chinese, uh, the wealthy, the wealthy Chinese investors have stopped putting their money into real estate, which of course we know in China, there's problems around real estate, but instead they've been buying hard assets like Rolex watches and gold and, you know, things like that, Mm. rare collectibles. Uh, we talked, we had a conference call with one of our wholesalers, maybe about a weekish ago, something like that. And we said, okay, so what are you seeing at the auctions? And he said that it's the higher end gold coins, the really high collectible numismatic coins that were going so far above what was anticipated. So who can afford an $8 million coin, but somebody that's pretty wealthy, right? Right, right. And um, and then I was talking just like two days ago to a very high-end antique dealer friend of mine, and he was just finishing up a show. And I said, so how did you do? And he goes, the best show I've ever had in 25 years. And his stuff is all museum quality. It's all at the highest level. Interesting. What does that tell you what the wealthy are doing? Yeah. You know, it's it's a market I'm not super familiar with. It's interesting to hear you talk about it. I buy physical gold and silver. You know, it's like I got I told you before I hit record, I got three young kids. One of the first things I did when I had a bit of extra dough was fill a safe full of gold and silver, hide it away. And then it it gives me a level of like psychological confidence, right? That you just got that insurance policy. 
Um, exactly. But I've never considered buying collectible coins. So would that relate more to like the art market or how, because where I would struggle is like, how do you value the asset? That is such a great question. Okay, so this is kind of how it works, just at a base level. You go into an auction, and on one table, there's 10 coins. And so there's 10 people at this auction. Everybody wants one. So wherever the bidding opens, that's what you get. But you have another table, and there's one. And 10 people want it. So whoever is willing to pay the most ends up getting it. But then you've got nine people who are going, oh, man, I really wanted that coin. Sure. Right. So in a sense, so basically that's how the collectible market works, because when you're doing things like bullion, so maybe new eagles, things like that. Right. Yeah. Right. You're looking at the spot market. Do you really think that Wall Street spot market that can create as much gold that does not exist? as they want to and control for virtually no money, millions and billions and trillions of dollars in physical, do you think that really reflects its true fundamental value? No, of course not. No, right? So the handy part is, is that on the lower end of the collectible market, that is frequently influenced by that, right? The bullion market is absolutely influenced by that. Sure, yes. But the higher end of the market runs a combination, right? Mm. So you've got that gold itself is rare. Physical gold itself is rare. Anything that's physical, there's a finite amount of it, right? But when you're looking at, say, a pre-1933 coin, well, they melted down most of those. So that means that it's even more rare. So that's one thing about the collectible market. And But here's what I learned from my Uncle Al. I remember we went to his house and he said, I was with my parents, and he said, come on, I want to show you guys something. So we go in a back bedroom and he had two tall floor safes. And he said to, he said to my parents, really, but I was there. And he said, he opened up the safes and he said, if anything should happen to me, Aunt Birdie will be well taken care of for the rest of her life with what's in these safes. And I turned around and looked. And you could not fit more than, you could not fit even one more pre-33 one-ounce gold coin in there. That's how stuffed they were. Now, at 10 years old, did I really comprehend what I was looking at? Of course I did not. Right? Right. And I didn't even know how much he had. Now, with hindsight, I could tell you he had at least three monster boxes in each safe. And in a monster box, there's 500 ounces. So right. that means that he had at least 3,000 ounces of gold in those safes. When it was illegal hmm. to, hold, to hold more than five ounces of gold. Unless Fascinating. you held it in that form. So he'd go into wealthy houses. He would buy great antique pieces, but he would also buy their gold coins probably for 35 bucks an ounce. Because sure. that's what it was then. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I personally, in this country, we have actually had gold confiscated three times. The last time was 33. 
So we have a history of gold confiscation. Additionally, like in India in 2016, when they demonetized their currency, they did go, I think it was selective, but they did go house to house gathering gold. And India, which is really known, especially the population, holds their wealth personally, right? So they're known for that. And India has been trying to get them to deposit their gold forever. Some great work that the that the uh, central bank in India did on how to to do that. But they did go house to house and do a certain level of confiscation. So that was 2016. That's not that long ago. And it's happened in Vietnam. I mean, it's happened in recent history in a number of places. So my personal feeling is that it is most likely to happen again here and because desperate governments do desperate things. And the motivation would be to force utilization of the standard currency, the government-issued currency, right? That's what it's right. all about, right? Yeah, and It is. And most of the gold, like the because I look mm-hmm. at what you can hold in an IRA. Now, I'm not talking about silver in here. I'm just talking about gold. I look at what you can hold in an IRA because that's classified as monetary gold. And that's where most of the gold is actually held by the general public is inside of IRAs. So if they were to do an overt confiscation, because inflation is a covert confiscation, price manipulation is a covert confiscation, right? So if they were to do an overt confiscation and say, turn in your gold, how easy would it be to do a big, huge sweep of the IRAs? Right. Yeah. Automatic. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, no trustees going to go, all government, you can't take it. Yeah. So I want to be personally in the classification that is least likely to be confiscated. And that would be with a person that just spent $8 million on one ounce of gold, because frankly, they're either writing the laws like Treasury Secretary Wooden was when he put that that uh, law in place that my uncle Al could hold those those pre-33s because he wanted to keep accumulating it, mm. or they would likely have the ability to influence those sure. that write those laws. But you see, the mm. eminent domain laws say that the government could take anything, but they have to pay you fair market value. Which is, yeah. Which is being manipulated. Right. But the collectible coins make up less than 2% of the total gold market. So there, they would have to look at every single coin. Mm -hmm. It would be too complicated. It wouldn't be worth it. Plus, again, you know, I want to be on the side of the influencers. And you don't have to spend $8 million to do that, by the way. Right, right. The premiums have been so low. They've been getting bigger, but they're still so low. And they're also severely undervalued. So I do just a basic, easy calculation. Okay, what's the fundamental value? What's the true value of an ounce of gold for its most important function? And in my opinion, the most important function is to hold your wealth, your purchasing power even does many other things, but that's the most important function. So if I know for an absolute fact 
that the true value of an ounce of gold is $50,000, then quite honestly, I can spend, I haven't really spent 50,000 on a coin, but I'm just saying, I do know that, that the minimum fundamental value of an ounce of gold is 50 grand. So if I spend anything less than that, and it's not even a high collectible, my bet is hedged. You feel like you're getting the bargain. A hundred percent. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways, lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. You know, I want to use this as a segue into into Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And I, I know Absolutely. you don't, yeah, you know, just because it's it's a common comparable that people draw and, and I disagree that it's a, you know, they're comparable. I own both and honestly, for different reasons, different reasons that I, I understand exactly why I own gold. I'm less clear on why I own Bitcoin, uh, knowing what I know, I want a horse in the race, but to draw the 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 comparison doesn't make so much sense to me. However, I heard you have, I heard your perspective and I, I really thought it was interesting and I may butcher this. So tell me if I'm out of line here, but you described Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as almost like an ideal training ground for, so, so why would the US government allow, you know, such uh, freedom of owning cryptocurrencies competitive to the US dollar? Well, because this is an ideal training ground to train the public to become a custom to a digital currency so that when they roll out their government issued digital currency, we already understand how they function. Whereas if we were just hit with this cold turkey moving from paper money to a government issued digital currency, we'd all be like, well, I don't understand this. What is this garbage, right? Like I don't- Here's change. Yeah. Oh yes. my goodness. Because one thing they knew and that you did it great. Uh, one <laughs> thing they knew when they set up this whole system is that um, you know people marry the legal money of the state. And so what they say in their documents, so I'm not making this up, this is what they say in their documents, anybody can read them, is that they need to keep the new currency as close to the, uh, to the norm that people are used to as possible. And that's what happened in 1971, right? And if you look at the bills, they look, really identical. Sure. Right? Yeah. So change. people, it's very subtle. So people did not know of the change. Now, I think it's coincidental that in 1996, the NSA did a white paper, government agency did a white paper on how to create a mint, uh, outlining how to develop the cryptocurrencies and the market. Hmm. I don't know. Then in 90, I think it was seven or eight, uh, there was a peer review paper on smart contracts. Uh, Bitcoin came out in January of 2000. And I've been watching it since it was seven bucks. One of my clients said, hey, look at this. Mm. So, so Bitcoin came out in January of 2009. What else? Where were we in this trend cycle? The system right. died in 2008. Hello, it died. Right. And then in March of 2009, the Federal Reserve began this next major experiment in quantitative easing, 
which is just massive money printing to massively devalue the currency. Is that a coincidence? I don't really believe in coincidences if you want to know the truth. So yeah, that, that is my opinion of it. And I will say the people that buy the cryptocurrencies and the people that buy the gold have a very similar mindset. They're awesome. really unhappy with what they're seeing and they want a decentralized private place to hold wealth. I, I get that. And I, I really do get that. But I don't think you're very private with Bitcoin because what do you do when you open an account? Don't you have to give them your name, address, social security number? And they were supposed to not be able to on the blockchain. That was supposed to be a permanent transaction. And yet recently, haven't we seen some money being clawed back by the government and Bitcoin from people that had taken it? Sure. So that means that's not really true, right? It's not immutable. They can claw it back. Mm -hmm. So it's not private. It is decentralized, except that it has to go over computer systems. Right. And the IMF did a piece, um, well, it was actually, oh gosh, it was, it was, um, when was it? was like 2017, AC Chain tied, this is a new, bear with me here, I'm going back to my memory here for a second. Yeah. But uh, they came out with a new cryptocurrency and their currency was tied to Bitcoin and then went through these nodes. And one of the nodes was that it went through the IMS. Now in another paper, and it converted into an SDR, right? So when it was matched, with their coin was matched with Ethereum and, or Bitcoin, then it turned into an SDR and it went through the IMF node. Now, there were, they had a paper on uh, the IMF, had a paper on how every title to every asset would be held in digital form. And then it would be broken down into itty bitty pieces. And if you're holding all of your data and all of your wealth on a phone, which makes it super easy to spend. Yeah. And you are inspired to buy that boat and you have equity in your house on your flipping phone, that will inspire you to spend your equity. 100%. And before you know it, you will own nothing and you will be happy. <laughs> Have we heard those words? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah, it's an interesting take. I mean, convenience absolutely increases spending. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Pros and cons, right? The convenience of uh, just dripping dollar, you know, dollar cost averaging into an investment is, you know, beneficial, right? And that's mm -hmm. how I built my my crypto holdings. I don't, I don't like... Like I said, I, it's not a market I spend a lot of time analyzing, but I want a horse in the race. So in that case, I just dollar cost average into something because I'm not going to try to guess the price and all this stuff. Right. But, you know, it's a safe bet, uh, but it works both ways. And uh, oh, my gosh, if you could link whatever equity you have and whatever assets to and then directly transact off the back of that. Imagine the, the, the rapid pace that people would 
actually own nothing. It's it's a hundred percent very easy to see. Yeah, and and you know that they want they don't want to come in and take your stuff. They don't want to come in and make a big change because then you notice and you know you might go no. Sure. Yeah. But if it is your choice. And remember, they employ the most brilliant minds in psychology. It's called perception management. And that was actually uh, formalized by Reagan and Rupert Murdoch back in the 80s. Hmm. So, I mean, the whole piece is getting you to volunteer, volunteer your wealth, volunteer your work, volunteer, volunteer everything, because then who do you blame? Right. Mm. If you read their documents, they say all the time that they want distance between their policy and who implements it to you, how it's implemented. They prefer policy to be implemented, like to get rid of cash. Let the retail retailers do it. Right. And I know because of the Cerveza disease. You know, I mean, cash is dirty. Ooh, who right. wants cash? And yeah. there are stores that will not take cash anymore, right? I do not personally go to those stores because I want that choice. And I prefer to even go to stores. I know some that will only take cash. That's where I go and do my business most, mm-hmm. right? So does this retailer, I mean, I had this argument or this discussion, I'll say, with somebody that I'm, you know, very friendly with. And, and he's like, well, but they're doing it because they're trying to do this and this. And I said, I understand that they don't understand that they're actually implementing the plan of the IMF. I get that, but that doesn't make it right. I want to have that choice. You want to take debit cards, credit cards, super duper, Mm -hmm. but you also need to take cash because if we give that up, Well, that's, you know, I mean, it's the transition of money, right? So when we were, uh, when we had gold and and silver and it was in physical form, it was very heavy and inconvenient to carry that around. So you put it in a bank and they give you a gold certificate or a silver certificate, which you could go into any bank if you didn't like what the government was doing and you could convert it. So you had a decentralized money that was actually really private and it controlled the government because if you converted your gold certificates and took the gold out of the bank, well, then it created restrictions around how much spending the government could do. They didn't like that. So then they transitioned us into convenient paper money certificates because hey you can convert it into the gold and silver whenever you want and look at how much lighter it is look at how much more convenient this is awesome right and then in the 50s they started with the credit cards that uh, which had no you didn't have to have any collateral so it was a consumer credit card to get us used to that i mean we've been moving in this direction for a very long time but at least if you're holding a dollar bill in your wallet, well, it is a debt instrument, Federal Reserve note, but it does not pay or charge interest, right? So you still have that privacy 
And even though you can't protect your your purchasing power, sure, yeah, you can protect your principal. Well, that's a okay. problem because they got to go to negative rates. They're at zero percent. They're anchored at zero, and they have been since two thousand and eight. So they need you to volunteer your cash so that they then you're all digital. And if you read their documents, they absolutely say two key things for government, lifetime taxes. Okay. Because every single transaction, every income outgo is tracked. And besides that, for central banks, instead of having to wait 18 months to see if their policy was effective or how they implemented was actually effective, it's instant. Oh, yeah. We want you to consume. This is a consumer-driven economy. You're not spending enough money? Well, let's just lower those interest rates to negative. And they say, once we've got a digital currency, there are no limits to how low we can push interest rates. Right now, they do have limits. Now, they've been testing them, right? But not in the retail public. They've been holding off. But in the wholesale public, right, the banks. Right you've got the negative rate test. So they have been testing what their limits are in the current system. So one of the key recommendations, even though the dollar is losing all of its purchasing power value, there's only three cents left officially, it's still preserve your principal. You go and get it out now because what they've talked about is putting a chip in the new cash. They can't take cash away that abruptly because it's still right. used in too many transactions that we would know there was a change, right? They don't want us to know there's a change, but they could put a chip and we'll put a chip in the new bills so that when they take us to negative rates, that that cash responds the same way. So now you go to use that cash and because of that chip, it shows them, well, it's really only, it's a, you know, it might be a dollar bill, but it's only worth 55 cents or 25 cents or depending upon how low they push the interest rates. So there's no getting away with it. When you take it out, when you deposit it, fees, and when you go to the retail store, one of the examples that they actually used, I mean, they did a great job at getting a lot of businesses not to want cash. But uh, the example they used was, you know, you go to a store and something, if you want to pay, um, if you want to, I'm going to use my own example because it's easier. You know, you go to Starbucks, you want a cup of coffee. If you use a debit card or a credit card, it's five bucks. Sure. And there's fees in there, right? If you use cash, it's six bucks. So what are you probably going to do? Use your debit or credit card. And all those fees flow to the banks because the banks are totally too big to fail. But that's transitioning too. I mean, it's just fascinating watching all of this. Yeah. It's, okay. I'm I'm like honestly struggling to keep up here, Lynette. I feel like this is one of those I'm interviews. Sorry. No, no, no. In the best way possible in that, you know, I, I'm just piling up notes that'll then have to do a bit of digging into you afterwards. I didn't know about this, the potential to chip dollar bills. This is, this is new to me. I, I didn't, uh, hadn't heard this before. I'll send you the link so you can share it. 
it was uh, 2000 and I think it was the 2000, uh, there, there's like this whole little series, uh, 2015, uh, I will get that to you as soon as possible. I just have to get you the right ones. And maybe I'll just send you the whole series and let you dig yeah, through that. Awesome. It's really awesome. quite interesting. They, they laid out a whole 18 page plan, uh, 18 uh, piece plan on how to make this transition. And one of the things they said was, well, we know how to do it because we did it, you know, in 1933 to 1971. We know how to do this. Yeah, they do. Right. Okay. Um, I know we're bumping up against the clock. So a couple uh, last minute things I want to throw at you. How serious are you taking the increasing headlines about uh, potential war in Europe? Are you? I'm taking them pretty seriously because that's another thing that always happens during currency transitions. Right. Always. It's a distraction. Yes. So I, I'm actually taking it very seriously because I because central banks are between a rock and a hard place. I, I don't think what happened in March of 2020 was a, a coincidence uh, either because of what was already happening in the markets breakdown. So, yes, I, I'm taking that very seriously. Therefore, would you, and I don't believe in coincidences, but it's convenient, therefore, that we've we've pulled out of the Middle East, right? It's almost like we're free agents open, you know, looking for a fight. We're looking for a fight, for sure. We're yeah. looking for a fight. Interesting. And that's and a fresh, that's a that's a fresh headline right there, right? Yeah. yeah you yeah. can't repurpose the same, the same work for too many years. Well, exactly. It's been going on for, you know, what, 20 years? Sure. And 18, uh, yeah. interesting that we left all of that equipment there because that justifies ramping back up the printing presses. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, there's, there's so many variables like that. And, you know, so much of the commentary we hear in, in financial media, maybe on like the alternative voices, right. The more libertarian voices often finger point that our regulators and government officials as, you know, short-sighted, not seeing the big picture. And I counter that with, they are absolutely seeing the big picture. You may not like the motives or the direction, but if you think there's idiots behind those walls, that's a completely foolish thing yeah. to think. I yeah. agree with you 100%, 100%. Okay. This is, this is definitely, they knew it would take a long time. I mean, the big experiment is up until they installed the Federal Reserve in 1913, then wars lasted a certain period of time and central banks had a certain level of charter where they would then go away too, because it always ended up in hyperinflation. And this was the first time though, because they never really tried to control inflation. It was just kind of a phenomenon that happened because they printed so much money to fund the war, et cetera. But when they installed the central bank, the big experiment was in them attempting to control the rate and speed of inflation by um, interest rates. That, that's really, I, I love how they always say we have the tools, but they never really explain what those tools are. They don't have the tools because we're anchored at zero. Mm. Because if they want to stimulate the economy, right, and create more inflation, then they drop interest rates down, more people borrow and spend. If, if inflation is running too hot so that you and I notice it, they raise interest rates up and then that stops or slows down the borrowing and spending. But if you're anchored at zero, there's no place to go but negative because the average that they would drop the rates were like five and a half, five and three quarters. 
well, can we do that now? Right. No. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the other thing is, really, I mean, it, it, you asked me this question earlier, so about raising the interest rates, right? First of all, the, the Fed has to do it now because of their credibility. They really can't not raise those interest rates in March, right? Sure. Now, they say that they're going to do maybe four interest rate hikes this year, right? Maybe four. And they're going to come in with shock and awe at half a percent. So let right now, the rate that they control is what, 0.018 or something like that. So if they came in and did four half a percent interest rate increases, that would be just a little bit more than 2%, right? Yeah. yeah. But official inflation is running at 7%. So if you don't have an, something, if you're making an investment and it's not paying you more than 7%, if you buy the official inflation rate, right. then guess what? You're in negative territory, aren't yeah, 100%. you? 100%. The real interest rate is absolutely negative. So they're behind the curve. They ain't going to get above the curve because there's no way they're going to raise interest rates well above 7%. And it's game over. Get into position. Food, water, energy, security, barterability, wealth preservation, community, and shelter. Get it done. And oh, by the way, did you know that the 20 and 30-year bond interest rates, the yield curve inverted in the 20 and 30-year treasuries? Not hearing that on talking media, are you? I want you to touch on the significance of that for me, Lynette. Oh. Is very significant. A, a yield curve inversion is when the shorter term interest rate pays more than the longer term interest rate. So why in the world would you loan anybody money for 30 years when you would get paid more to loan them money for 20 years? Because that's the, that's the yields that just inverted the 20 and 30, and they always start out on the long end of the inversion, yeah. right? Yeah. So that just inverted it. I consider it an early warning sign because we've been hearing about how flat the yield curve is and how the Fed, if they start to push up interest rates, they're going to create a yield curve inversion, but they, but it's already happened, right? It's not something we have to wait for. Yeah, the shorter yields, yes. The reason why that is significant is because a yield curve inversion foretells usually by 12 to 18 months, the next recession. Well, a recession is deflation, right? Things go down. The stock market goes down. That's deflation. Whatever, real estate prices go down. That's deflation. A recession is deflation. There's only one way, only one way to fight deflation, and that's with inflation. Sure. So we're already in hot territory. So I believe, and I could be wrong. I mean, it's certainly not something that's within my control. So, so since we know that yield curve inversions, 100% of the time, according to the New York Fed, uh, creates recessions, I think this next recession will send us into the hyperinflation, which personally I think has already begun, although I don't have technical confirmation of it yet. 
So I can't say, you know, absolutely. But in my gut, that's what it feels like and smells like and tastes like. And boy, if you're distracted by Warren, now we have to put out all of this money and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Easy okay. peasy. Interesting forecast. Okay, so that's where you lie in the on the inflation versus deflation debate 12, 18 months down the road, two years down the road. 100%. Yeah. 12 to 18 yeah. months. I don't think it'll last two years. And And, you know, I mean, you have to also keep in mind that the LIBOR interest rate benchmark against which $610 trillion in notional value contracts are written, so mortgages, credit cards, but the derivatives, the big bets against stocks or bonds or weather or whatever it's going to be, credit, right? $610 trillion have to be restructured into that new SOFR benchmark and the SOFR benchmark that the Fed created and has been testing for a number of years doesn't work right. So it hasn't been adopted the way they wanted it to be adopted. And now the, the issue gets forced in 2023. It was supposed to be forced in 2021, but they ran a test in October of 2020, 80 trillion. Mm -hmm. And it went dead silent until like, Three weeks later, they came out and announced that they were postponing most of the transition until 2023. So sure. for me, 2022 is a hugely pivotal year. And it would make it would make absolute sense to have the yield curve invert 12 to 18 months. That puts us right smack dab in 2023. And they can't do it. It's another big experiment. And, and they already know, the market already knows it doesn't work. Uh, we're, we're, get ready. Get hey, ready. And that's why your mantra is food, water, energy, security, barterability, wealth preservation, community, and shelter. You know, you're living, you're practicing what you preach. We spoke about the farm you're, you've built, right? Sustainable, uh, relatively yep. sustainable yourself, right? You've got, you know, okay. you're growing your own food, protein sources, plants. You know, my final question for you, therefore, would be Lynette. We talked a lot about hedging your bets and safe haven strategies, like what we just discussed. You know, you're you're growing your own food, you're holding physical gold. You know, for someone who's looking to increase their wealth through this next 24 month transition period, where's the upside other than you know maybe appreciation and in, in precious metals? But you know, where should they be looking? Do you think? Well, I can tell you where I am looking. And I'm doing what the wealthy do. So gold and silver are the monetary metals. Primary is gold. Secondary is silver. Those are the only two assets that I see out there that are severely undervalued. And my personal preference is always to have the lion's share of my wealth in an undervalued asset that is in a long-term positive trend and the least amount of my wealth in an overvalued asset or instrument that's in a long-term negative trend. So I'm very patient to tell you the truth. I'm very patient. I identify where we are and then I like to sleep at night. I am not a short-term trader, so I'm not looking for anything short-term. I'm looking to make sure that I can take care of, actually, if I'm going to be perfectly honest, 
more about my children and my grandchildren than about me because I'm 67. So, I mean, I'll probably be around another 33 years or so because I think I'm going to make it to be 100. But, you know, I, I just accumulate what the wealthy accumulate and definitely mostly gold and silver. And it isn't because Wall Street is going to tell me that it's now worth this or that. It's because when they do those overnight revaluations, they take something that has no intrinsic value, like dollars, right? It's only used in one place, the financial system. You can't eat dollars and it's only used in one place because it's an intangible. And they take that and they revalue it against physical gold that is all, it is all intrinsic value. It is because it has the greatest utility of any asset, period, gold and silver both. The greatest utility, and both of them are used in every single area of the global economy. Right. That's why they've never gone to zero, because mm. they have the broadest base of fire and they revalue that overnight. So like in Venezuela, who's now done three overnight revaluations, we'll see if they're going to do another one. The average is three. Um, they did went spot gold because they suppressed it. So when they did that overnight revaluation, spot gold went up like something like thirty five hundred percent. Interesting. Uh-huh. It's very interesting. <laughs> huh. Probably why I've been doing it for all these years. Yeah, yeah. And we are living in the single most interesting time that we could ever be living because this is a social, economic, and financial reset. That's like way more than what happened in 71. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, look, Lynette, it's been great chatting with you, letting me pick your brain and and, and peel so much information out of you. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. This was this was really fun. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.